When, when God called me to preach as a 10-year-old as a boy, I really thought I would spend my entire life pastoring churches in West Texas. I mean, I never even entertained the thought that I would leave the place I loved. And I love Texas. My favorite football team is the Dallas Cowboys, always has been. My favorite baseball team is the Texas Rangers. I even love the shape of Texas. I mean, it's awesome. You, you look at the outline of Texas and you say, now that's a state. It's the great republic of Texas. Needless to say... I thought I was in hog heaven when on two occasions I did get to pastor in my home state in Fort Worth, Texas and in Plano, Texas. But you know what? Both times, both times, God called me to leave Texas and to come to Arkansas. And that's when it happened. That's when I realized I had a little bit of Jonah in me. In fact, I've diagnosed it like this. I have a Jonah gene in my DNA. Now, you're not getting it, but remember the story of Jonah? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Yeah, I don't like it, but there is a little bit of Jonah in me. And, and perhaps you're here today, and you're in the same boat. No pun intended. Come on, people. <laughs> Maybe there's a little bit of Jonah in you, too. And so today, I, I just want to speak on the subject, Lord, there's a little bit of Jonah in me. And for that, would you turn to the book of Jonah? It's in the Old Testament towards the end, and what a great little book it is. I want to start by reading Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry. Do you see that? Go to Nineveh and cry. The verse goes on to say, out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But God sent Jonah to Nineveh to cry. Heavenly Father, I pray that our hearts would be stirred today and even broken for the people of the world who have never heard the good news of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Today I'd like to say three things about this little book in the Bible. And the first thing I want to say is this. The story of Jonah is a story about weeping. It's about weeping. For Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and to cry. To cry out. That is, God wanted him to proclaim a message that reflected the weeping heart of God. It is the story of the heart of God that was weeping for a city and weeping for a confused world. Church, with all the seriousness in my heart, I've got to tell you that we too are living in times that should make us cry. I think all of you know about my, my middle girl, Callie. She's coming home Tuesday night. 
and you're invited to come and, and join us at the airport to welcome her home. She's been gone for nine months, and the last time I saw Callie on American soil was uh, at the airport in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and it was there that I put this green little wristband on my wrist. Uh, it's imprinted with uh, the worldrace.org. I put this on nine months ago to remind me every day to pray for my Cali. Tuesday night, I'm taking this thing off. Yeah, I'm surprised it hadn't wasted away or rotted or I, because I haven't had it off a single second since she's been gone. So Tuesday night, I'm taking it off because she's coming home. I guess I'll replace it with another one. She's going to Baylor, so it's going to be the same cotton-picking green, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> We're glad she's coming home. Last three months, she's been in Cape Town, South Africa. The three months before that, you know, she was in the Philippines. And it was the end of the sixth month she was gone that you sent Angie and I to join Callie in the Philippines. We were reunited with our daughter, and we also got to do a week's worth of ministry with her team in the Philippines. And I will never forget, as long as I live, going north of Manila to Angeles City and walking the 1.5-mile road of Fields Avenue with brothels on both sides of the street, and those brothels filled with 14,000 young prostitutes who had been sold into the sex slave industry. They ranged from 14 years old up to 27. When those girls got 27, 28 years old, the mama-sons would kick them out because they were too old. Most of the girls, 90% of those little girls that were there were sold into the sex trade industry by their parents so that they could provide an income for the family. That should break our hearts. I'm telling you, it broke mine. Did you know that over 90,000 children live on the streets of Zambia today, most of them orphaned by the AIDS epidemic. More than half of the 600,000 children of Zambia have lost at least one parent. Death is so common there that coffins are sold out of multicolored vans that are sitting on the side of the road. The younger children, we're talking about little kids who are the age of your children who are back with Brother Johnny right now, are living on the streets and they find abandoned aerosol cans to sniff, trying to numb the pain that they live with 24 hours a day. Teenagers live in a state of constant drunkenness from a homemade brew that they beer that they brew. And from smoking something called jeckum. Let me tell you what jeckum is. They scrape it from the inside of sewer pipes. It's, it's human feces. And they will take the human feces and stuff it into a plastic bottle, put the lid back on, and set it out in the sun so that it will ferment. And after it has fermented, they'll take the lid off and they will inhale the vapors. And it gives them a cheap high. They are an abandoned, lost generation living dazed on the streets and they're dying in the sewers. That should make us cry. That should make us cry. I recently read a story about a man on the New York subway. He was 37 years old, 5 foot 6, weighed 170 pounds. 
He was wearing blue jeans, a gold polo shirt, and black boots. He was sitting there on the subway as people got on and got off, coming and going, bustling movement all around him. But he was dead. He got on the subway and died in his seat. And for over a day, no one even noticed that he was dead. And here we are, Christians. We're living in a world full of dead people. We come and we go and we ride around in circles. And sometimes, listen to me, sometimes we lose our burden. Sometimes we become so callous that we lose our passion for Christ. We forget that we're surrounded by people who are dead to Christ. And they're dead to hope. And we forget that we are serving a Savior who wept over the city of Jerusalem. We serve a Savior who wept at the grave of Lazarus. And he weeps over Fort Smith. And the River Valley. And the state of Arkansas. He weeps over our backslidden country. Our God is weeping over the 259 nations of the world and He weeps over the 6,700 different people groups that remain unreached with the good news of Jesus Christ. Our God is weeping. Shouldn't we? So the Lord told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry. Cry about them. Do something for them. Evangelize them. Save them. But you know what Jonah did. And that's the second thing I want you to notice. The story of Jonah is not only a story about weeping. It's also a story about sleeping. What some of you might be doing right now. So I'm going to be like Garrett. I'm going to take off my jacket and roll up my sleeves. Channel 5 News, y'all got that? When the big storms come. You know what? I'm praying right now. I've been praying all week that God, would you blow a mighty wind through Kavanaugh Sanctuary Sunday morning? I mean, we need a tornado of God coming through this building. We need the Holy Spirit of God to blow through here. Shake us up a little bit, don't we, church? Mm, come on, God. Do something in our hearts today. Listen to this story, Jonah chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Let me just add, comment here. Tarshish was the furthest known point in the world at that time. So quite literally, Jonah was trying to run as far away from God as he possibly could. He paid the fare thereof, went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He, he, this is where there's a little bit of Jonah inside of me. Sometimes I run from the will of God. Sometimes God asks me to do things I don't want to go, do. Lord, I don't want to go to Arkansas. I love Texas. But always be very careful what you say. I was young and stupid and inexperienced, and from a pulpit I said, I would rather go to Africa than Arkansas. Anyway, that's a side point. Verse 4. You can't run from God. You can't run from God. Verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. 
and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners, these skilled sailors, were afraid, and every man cried out to his own God, and he threw the, they threw the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah... Here's our man, here's Jonah, had gone down into the belly of the ship. He had lain down in the ship, and he was what? He was fast asleep. Can you believe that? The book of Proverbs says, He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. And I wonder if it isn't likewise with us. Here we are, church, listen to me. Here we are in the middle of the greatest harvest season the church of Jesus Christ has ever known in its entire history. But most of us, to be honest about it, are relatively unaware and we're uninvolved in what God is doing globally. This past week, the Free Will Baptist International Missions Board met in Nashville, Tennessee. I was there because I am now a member of the International Missions Board. We met, we approved certain missionaries to go out on the field, and one big thing we did was approve the budget for 2018. We have to do that in advance because it will be voted on at the National Association this summer in 2017. It is a $7.1 million budget. $7.1 million will fund the International Missions Department during the year 2018. There's a lot of projects that go on throughout that budget, but we also send out and support 70 foreign missionaries with that $7.1 million. Now, I am no mathematician, but I did some calculations, and I was shocked to discover that our entire international missions budget could be met if every free will Baptist in Northern America, if every free will Baptist in every free will Baptist church just gave a dime a day, we could meet that budget. It's really not even a dime. It's 9.5 cents. Can you, can, listen, can you get that? If all of us, there's 200,000 free will Baptists, if all of us just gave a dime a day, we would meet that budget. But let me tell you, every year I am struggles. They have to go out and beg for money. Right now, there are a dozen missionary couples who are at home and can't go back out overseas because they don't have the support to do so. We're stingy with our money. We're not willing to give a dime a day so that the world can hear. Now, just continue on because this is the way I think about things. I got my little calculator and I did some more math. And I figured this out. If we got real crazy, can we get crazy? If we got real crazy and we decided to give the $1 a day that we spend on our daily newspaper... That's how much the daily newspaper costs a dollar. You can't buy much for a dollar these days. You can't even buy a cup of coffee at McDonald's for a dollar. Cost a buck twenty-nine. You go to Starbucks or Sweet Bay, it's going to cost you a lot more than that. But if we just gave a dollar a day, if all of us, 
all 200,000 just gave a dollar a day, we would increase denominational missions giving from $7 million to $73 million. And instead of sending just 70 missionaries out, we could send over 730 missionaries out. But somebody's asleep. And what about our prayer support? J.O. Frazier was a missionary to China in the early 1900s, and he credited the conversion of hundreds of families to the prayers of this little earnest prayer group left behind in England. Here is what J.O. Frazier said Christians at home can do as much for foreign missions as those who are actually on the field. It will only be known on the last day how much has been accomplished in missionary work by the prayers of earnest believers back at home. You know what? I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel bad today. But then again, I am trying to make you feel bad. Most of us don't take praying for missionaries very seriously. If we do receive those little prayer cards that missionaries send out or monthly updates, we're more likely to just scan them and toss them in the trash than we are to spread them out before God and like Hezekiah, pray over them like he did during the Assyrian crisis. Somebody sleeping. And what about the internationals flooding into our country? Did you know right now today there are over one million international students in the United States training in our colleges and universities? Some of them are going to go back and be political and military and educational leaders in their own countries. But you know what? While they're in America, we can reach some of them. If we're not asleep, and for decades, Free Will Baptists have been asleep, but recently we've awakened we've realized the opportunity and right now we do have a missionary couple the Penn family Tyler and Kelly with their three children they are serving at the University of Illinois doing cross-cultural ministry there with these foreign students teaching them not only English but also presenting the good news of Jesus one-fourth of the 44,000 students at the University of Illinois are international students and we have a missionary couple on campus ministering to them. Isn't that great? Well, it's great. But you know what? Their account's in the deficit right now. Because we don't see it. We're asleep to the need. Oh, we don't mind giving money to and supporting missionaries who are in Africa. But what about right here? with international students. My goodness, there is a huge need, but we're asleep. Recently, I read a bit of history that has been called the biggest lost opportunity in missionary history. There was a 13-year-old Mongolian boy who inherited a bit of land from his father. This boy was a precocious warrior with instinctive brilliance as a military strategist. He was also ruthless. 
And he formed these small fighting bands and went from village to village until he was ruling over two million people in the Mongolian Empire. It stretched from China to India, from Siberia to the edges of Western Europe. They gave this young man the title Genghis Khan. And he ruled over more territory than any one person has ever ruled over. Meanwhile, at the very same time, in Western Europe, there was a great revival going on with thousands of people being saved and converted to Christianity through the preaching of men like Francis of Assisi. Following Khan's death, the bulk of his empire eventually went to his grandson, Kublai Khan, who established his capital in the city of Beijing. He had two Italians in his court with the last name of Polo, the father and the uncle of the famed explorer Marco Polo. And these two Polo brothers began to tell Kublai Khan about Christianity. And the great ruler became very interested. He sent the Polo brothers back with a request to send 100 missionaries to the Mongolians and the Chinese and tell them about Christianity. Here is what Kublai Khan said. When we learn about Christianity, there will be more Christians in my empire than in all of Europe. <laughs> so the Polos returned with the message. But nobody was interested in going to Beijing. They couldn't get anyone to go. Finally, Two friars agreed to go with the polos and Marco accompanied them. But along the way, the friars got faint-hearted and they turned around and went home. So when they got back to Beijing, Kublai Khan said, Where are all the missionaries? But there were none. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ was asleep. I've known for a couple of weeks what I was going to preach today, and I have been praying harder for this message, I think, than I've prayed for a message in a long time. And I have been asking God to wake some of us up today, to wake us up out of our sleep of apathy, to wake us up where we would be willing to say, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say. And yes, God, whatever you ask me to give, I'll give. Well, the story of Jonah ends better than the one about the Polo brothers. <laughs> I think you're aware of the story of a big whale and how eventually God got a hold of Jonah and headed him in the right direction. And thus we discover that the story of Jonah is not only a story about weeping and sleeping, it's also a story about reaping. Jonah did go to Nineveh. I don't think he was very excited about it especially after spending three days and three nights in the, the Whale Motel. <laughs> wasn't, it, wasn't a real good place to stay. He went there and he walked around the city and through the city and he preached a sermon of one sentence. And I, I don't really think Jonah wanted to be there and I don't think he was very passionate in his preaching. He was just saying it one sentence, all he said we read it in chapter 3, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That was his message. He preached it all through the city, 40 days and you people are going to be annihilated. You got 40 days and it's over, 40 days, God's going to, he's going to kill all of you. <laughs> but you know what, it was enough and God used it. 
The entire city was converted. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 says, So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. From the king to the pauper in the street. Every one of them, all of them were converted. All of them. And I want to suggest to you, church, that just as the book of Jonah brings to us the greatest single in-gathering of souls in the Bible, so you and I today in 2017 are privileged to live during the greatest single harvest season ever witnessed by the church of Jesus Christ. God is doing amazing things all across the world. According to recent statistics, it took from the beginning of church history until the year 1900 for committed believers. And I'm not, I'm not talking about people who simply said they were Christians. I'm talking about committed Christians. It took from the beginning of church history till 1900 for committed believers to be 2.5% of the world population. It took only 70 more years for that percentage to double. By 1970, committed believers were 5% of a much larger world population. And then it just took 22 years for that number to double again. In 1992, committed believers grew to become 10% of still a larger world population. According to George Otis of the Sentinel Group, about 70% of all the church's outreach since its beginning until today has been accomplished in the last 100 years. And about 70% of what has been accomplished in the last 100 years has taken place since 1945. And 70% of what's happened since 1945 has happened in the last 25 years. According to missionary statistics, over 260,000 people every day are now being presented the plan of salvation. And there is a growing sense of excitement amongst missiologists that we could actually be within striking distance of seeing the gospel presented to every known people group within the lifetime of some of you who are in this room today. That is amazing. That's amazing. But let's get the full picture. Let's see everything. Understand this, church. The greatest areas of harvest are not happening in the United States. They're happening elsewhere. Only about 15% of the worldwide body of Christ now live in North America. Did you get that? And the 15% of us that are here, we're not doing too good. 85% of American churches are either plateaued or declining. American society, the America we live in today, has entered into a post-Christian era. Our culture is becoming so secularized and so cynical that only a revival of biblical proportions is going to save the church of the United States of America. North American missionaries, our missionaries, are overall becoming fewer and older. 
And that's true. You look at the pictures of our missionaries and Free Will Baptists. J just over the last 10 years, we've gone from 100 missionaries down to 70. Did you hear me? In the last 10 years, we have gone from 100 missionaries down to 70 missionaries. It's not the way elsewhere in the world. In, in, in foreign countries, the missionaries that they are now sending out to other nations are increasing and they're youthful. Just a snapshot of this is Cuba. Did you know that all, all during Castro's empire down there, we have had a Free Will Baptist church that's been thriving and growing. There are over 10,000 Free Will Baptists in Cuba today. They just finished their National Association meeting a couple of weeks ago. And here's what they decided. The Cuban Free Will Baptists decided, we have been ministered to long enough. Now it's time for us to become missionaries ourselves. And so they are sending out three missionary families, one of which is a doctor and his wife to the Ivory Coast, West Africa. And here's what they said. I love this. They said... It's not going to cost nearly as much to send us out as it costs you Americans. Because we already live in poverty. Now you try that on for size. <laughs> God is doing some things. God is up to something. But here's what that means, church. Listen to me. If you individually and Kavanaugh Church corporately are not heavily invested in overseas missions, we're going to miss out on 85% of what God is doing in this world. Did that sink in? Let me put it like this. We, we can't be just concerned with what's going on within the four walls of this church and in the river valley. Yes, we have to evangelize. We need to tell our neighbors, our city, this church has to keep growing. We have to keep winning people to Jesus. But you know what? If we just become stuck with taking care of ourselves, we will eventually die. We need to be involved in what God is doing because our God is a global God. I don't know about you, but I want to know that when I lay my head down on my pillow at night, that someone somewhere in the world is getting up to continue the work. And that person, listen to me, that person has been sent out by my church, supported by my dollars, and sustained by my prayers. I want to have a part in a ministry on which the sun never shines or never sets. I want to be a part of something that is much bigger than I am. Something that is wider than the brick walls of Kavanaugh Church. I want to be involved in a global harvest of global proportions. Because Jesus is coming soon. Chet Betterman graduated from Bible College, got married, had three kids. He felt God calling him to missions, and so he surrendered. He ended up with the Wycliffe Bible Translators in Columbia, South America. Then on January the 19th, 1981, terrorists broke into his apartment, tore him away from his crying family, and two weeks later, his body was found stuffed in a truck. A single bullet shot had been shot into his chest. When Chet had realized that God was calling him to be a missionary in Latin America, 
he penned something that was uh, strangely prophetic in his journal. And here's what he wrote. Maybe this is just some kind of self-inflicted martyr complex, but I find this reoccurring thought that perhaps God will call me to be martyred for Him in His service in Columbia. And if that is the case, I am willing. There may be some here today who have just a little bit of Jonah inside of them. If that is you, I pray that you would come and pray, Lord, I'm willing. I don't know, maybe God is calling you to go to be involved in mission work, whether it be a short-term missions trip or maybe God is calling some of our young people to be career missionaries. Would you say... I have decided to follow Jesus. Why not come to the altar today and pray to the Lord, Lord, wherever you lead me, I will go. And why not all of us say, here am I. Here am I, Lord. Send me.